Good morning. It is an honor to be with y'all. Um, just a point of personal privilege before we jump into God's Word. Um, I've been so blessed by this church. I don't know many of you. I know just a few. Uh, but when I was at Clemson and I was just a baby new Christian trying to figure out what it looked like to be a member of a healthy church, I came here. And this was the first place I got to experience what it looked like for God's people to worship a great God and to love people well. But not only that, even more impacted uh, than I was is my family. My wife uh, went to church here also when she was at Clemson and still talks about Clemson Prez with this twinkle in her eyes, this community that she was a part of. I don't know if y'all still adopt college students, but she was adopted into this community group and she got to walk faithfully with God alongside of you. So I'm so thankful for this church. Thanks for serving God and loving Jesus well, especially in the lives of college students. Very, very thankful for you. Uh, If you'll open God's word to Exodus chapter 12, we're going to read there together. We'll be in verses 1 through 6 and then 21 to 28. Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be for you the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it till the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, we're in verse 21, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house. Until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? you shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of, in, of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And so, Father, as we open your word, you tell us that it's powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, that it penetrates us right into our very heart and soul, and that it produces the kind of godly people that you want us to be created, recreated into to follow Jesus. And so, God, whatever we need this morning, right where we sit, encouragement, conviction, hope, God, we pray that you would use this word to penetrate us. 
and powerfully give us all that we need. And we pray and ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. If I were to ask you, the, the single most important event in the whole Old Testament, I'm curious how you would answer that question. You might say, uh, well, Genesis 1 and 2 are pretty important. If that's not uh, there, we, we're not getting much further, right? Genesis 3 is pretty important. It all kind of falls apart there for the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament. We're Uh, living with the effects of that, dealing with what happens from that point forward. You might point to the Ten Commandments or the giving of the law or David finally becoming the king. There's a lot of places you could go. And of course, there's no right answer, right? Like there's no, God doesn't tell us this is the most important event. But what I want to show you is that this morning, this passage that we've just read in Exodus chapter 12, this recounting of the Passover, if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, Uh, If you look at just references alone, over 40 times the Passover specifically is going to be mentioned, and over 200 times in the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to see the Exodus account, this whole account that goes over the next few chapters mentioned, that over and over and over again, God is bringing this back up and putting it back before his people as this major event in their history. And so, However you would answer that question doesn't really matter. What I want to show you from Exodus 12 is that this is a major turning point in the lives of, in lives of God's people. That in the history of redemption, this point is so important that a couple of hundred times God's going to keep bringing it back up. And we see in this chapter three things, three turning points for God's people. They get a new identity, they get a new freedom, and they get a new salvation. So we'll look at those one at a time. First of all, they get a new identity. One of the things we have to remember when we're looking at this passage is that this is a group of people who have been slaves for 400 years. Just to put a little context to that, I've gotten sucked recently into the rabbit hole of Ancestry.com. I'm not sure if you've ever done that before. If you haven't done it before, don't do it. It will suck your time and your life right out from underneath you before you even know it. But I actually found something amazing. I don't know if this is totally true because things get a little crazy when you're tracking back this far. But apparently, uh, my 10th great-grandfather arrived in America in 1620 on the Mayflower, which is a pretty cool thing. Uh, That was 402 years ago. I hadn't I'd never heard of that guy. No one that in my family had ever heard of that guy. He was totally distant from me because that was 400 years ago. That's how long this group of people has been slaves in Egypt, just so we wrap our minds around how long that is. No one they had ever heard of wasn't a slave. They didn't ask questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? They didn't think, hey, what do you want to do with your day-to-day? We're off school for the summer. What do you want to do? (laughs) Those weren't questions you asked. You were born into slavery. Your parents were slaves. Your grandparents were slaves. Everyone you knew was a slave. Your identity was inextricably linked with slavery. It's all you knew. And it's all that was possible in your future as far as you knew. And so slavery is such a part of the identity of every Israelite boy and girl until this chapter when God steps in and changes everything and their identity is forever altered. We get two hints of it in this passage. Look back at verse 1 with me. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. We don't know for sure 
But it seems highly possible that up until this point, especially because of the way the last 400 years have gone, the Israelites didn't keep time. They're living in a place uh, where seasons go like this, hot, very hot. That's it. So there was no turning point in the seasons. There were no holidays to look forward to. There was no July 4th to celebrate to kind of mark where you were in the year. There was no Monday to Friday work week. No, you were just a slave. And every day was the same. And days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months and months turned into years and time just became nebulous. And then God says, I'm about to do something that's going to reorient the way you keep time itself. Something so major in your life that the way you're going to keep track of time itself is going to be based on it. It's going to be that integral to who you are as a people. And then he does something else interesting. Look back at verse 3. We see it again in verse 6. God tells Moses and Aaron to report these Passover instructions to the congregation. So between this point and the end of Joshua, when God's people finally make it into the promised land, we're going to see that word congregation 125 times, but this is the first. Up until this point, they've been called um, Hebrews, identified by their ethnicity, or sons of Israel, identified by their genealogy. But God says, this is the moment where you become a people. This is the moment where you're going to be gathered, where your identity is going to be formed around something that's going to make you finally and fully into a congregation. This common experience that you're about to walk through. And so this is why God's constantly calling this event to their minds. So I just want to talk for a minute about this idea of identity. This is a major issue in our culture, by the way, if you're paying attention at all. Identity is a major word. A major shaper of who we are as a people and a country and who, trying to figure out who we are and what we're going to be. And so let me just give us a working definition to go with. Identity really has to do with two things. Your sense of self, who you fund, most fundamentally are as a person, and your sense of worth, what sort of value you have as a person. Your sense of self, who you most fundamentally are, your sense of worth, what gives your life value. And so I just want to very quickly show you, there's really four ways that you can determine your identity. Only, I think only four. The first one is this, your identity is achieved. The catchphrase for this would be, you are what you've done. And so you go, all right, what gives my life value, what determines who I am as a person, is what I've achieved. So you say, uh, look at my career. Look at how much money I've made. Look at how many times I've gotten promoted. Look how well-respected I am. This is my identity. It's found here. Or you say, my identity is in who I am as a parent, as a mom or dad. So look at my kids. Well, actually, don't look at my kids. They're not a good reflection of it. I'm a better parent than that, right? Uh, but I, you find your identity and how good of a mom you are, how good of a dad you are. Or you say, look at my moral track record. What gives my life value is that I have integrity, that I'm respected in the community, that my name carries weight with it. I have a great moral track record, that your identity is achieved. You are what you have done. Or it's possible that it could be the opposite. You are what you haven't done. You've never achieved anything. You're a total mess. Your family would disown you probably if they could. 
Or you have that one moment in your past that will always define you in your mind. That one thing you did or didn't do or should have done that will always stick with you, and that's what determines who you are. Either way, your identity is achieved. The second way we can form our identity is that our identity is imposed. You are what's been done to you. You've always carried around that one thing that your dad said to you when you were a teenager, and you've never been able to let it go. Identity was imposed on you. You're a failure. You're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. Or something that was done to you. One moment where someone did something to you, or maybe said something to you, that will forever haunt you. And all you can think is, my sense of self, who I am as a person, and my sense of worth is forever attached to that moment, or that event, or that person, or that comment. Your identity was imposed on you. The third way, identity is realized. Identity is realized. You're defined by something inside of you. This is the going category of identity formation in our world today, which is basically this. The only way you're going to know who you really are, and the only way you're ever going to find value in your life is to look inside. Look deep inside, and there you'll find who you truly are. What are your deepest desires? What do you most deeply want? When you look into your heart, who does it say that you are? And so when you do that, nobody gets to tell you how to live or who to love or what to do. Above all, you have to be true to yourself. The last way to to form an identity is this. Identity is received. You're defined by something outside of you. What gives you worth and value is not anything done by you or to you. It's something that was done for you. It's the only category of identity formation that really works. We'll pick on um, that first one, achieved identity, because I think so many of us live there in that category. So if you form your identity, your sense of self and your sense of worth by what you achieve, you see that you'll always be insecure, right? Always. Because when, you're, when things are going well and you're achieving, you'll just be prideful. You'll be high. You'll be great. But it's all about you. But what happens when things fall apart, when you don't achieve? When whatever you latch your identity onto in your life that gives you value falls apart, well, then you're depressed. Then you're low. Then you have no value. Or if you want to find your uh, value by looking inside, your identity by looking inside and finding what you find there. Do you realize how often you have competing desires in your life? I'll give you just a quick example. I was checking out of the grocery store yesterday, and I saw a, a magazine of a guy with his shirt off, and he was, he, it's like, this is what I want to look like. This is absolutely what I want to look like. So it's like, here's the 10-step process to look like this guy on this magazine. And I was about to get it. But then I saw another magazine that said 10 types of tacos you have to try this summer. (laughs) And I got that one. (laughs) My desires even within, you can't look inside yourself to figure out who you are. I mean, we have competing desires all the time. What has to happen, our identity can only be formed by something outside of us. An identity that's received. And that's what happens in Exodus 12, something that begins to mark God's people and is the reality for every follower of Christ in this room. Alec Matir, who's an Old Testament scholar, said this. He said, imagine uh, you saw an Israelite kind of in this stage of their journey, 
And he said this about their identity. He said, think about it. Think of what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you asked an Israelite, who are you? AKA, what's your identity? He would reply, I was in bondage in a foreign land and under the sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and our mediator let us out and we crossed over. And now we're on the way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. But he has given us his law to make us a community and he's given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he is present in our midst and he will stay with us until we make it home. Brothers and sisters, do you realize what you just heard? (laughs) A Christian would say it almost word for word. That this is your identity, not something you find inside of you, but something outside of you that has been done for you. Something that God did, interjected and did on your behalf. If we look inward, we'll never be more insecure. But if we look outward to what Christ has done, we'll never be more secure. Who are you most fundamentally? You're a person that's been rescued by God. You're a person that for whatever reason, God decided to love and choose and adopt and forgive and pour mercy on. What's your value? Your value is that God sent his son to hang on a cross and die in your place so that you could be brought into his family. You see that nothing can touch that? If your identity is received by what God has done for you and given to you, not earned by you, outside of you, only then will you really have security because it's received by grace. So the first thing Passover means is a new identity for the people of God. Second, two points are quicker, don't worry. Secondly, we see we get a new freedom. We get a new freedom. So what exactly is this life-altering, identity-shaping event that God has in mind? Look back at verse 22 if you have the text in front of you. Here's what you're going to do. Imagine being an Israelite and hearing this for the first time. You're 400 years slaves. God comes and he says, I'm finally going to rescue you. Here's the plan, Moses. And Moses comes to you and he says, here's the plan. You know that lamb that your kids love, Ralph? It's going to be a bad day for Ralph. So go get a spotless lamb, one year old, kill it, drain the blood, put all the blood in a basin, because here's what you're going to do next. You're going to paint your door frame with it. And then we're just going to walk out of here. I don't know about you, but if I'm an Israelite, I'm going, Moses, um, we should check back with God. Like what? What about weapons? What about a plan? What about strategy? We're going to paint blood on our doorframe and walk out of Egypt after 400 years? Moses is like, I don't know what you want me to tell you. I'm just as surprised as you are. This is the plan. This is what we're going to do. But they decide to trust him. Verse 28, the people of Israel went and did so the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, and they crossed the Red Sea and become free people. And this was the point the whole time. Exodus 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says what? Listen, you're in church on July 4th. I know you know this song, right? Oh, oh, what? Let my people go. Y'all know that, right? Y'all don't do VBS here? No. Right? Let my people go. That's what Moses says every time when he comes to Pharaoh. But there's no verse in that song that tells us why. Let my people go to do what? Every single time God says, let my people go so that they can serve me. 
or your version may say, let my people go so that they can worship me. This is a key point. This is so key. True freedom and the freedom that the Israelites get is not the earned right to go and do whatever you feel like doing. True freedom is the ability to go and be who you were created to be, to do what you were created to do. God wasn't just trying to get his people out of Egypt so they wouldn't be slaves anymore. He was trying to get them out so that they could worship him and only then would they live in true freedom. Biblical freedom is the ability to be who you're created to be. Tim Keller says it this way, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, it's the presence of right restrictions. So we'll, do, we'll illustrate it this way. Imagine you're at Six Flags or Carowinds or Disney or anywhere, and you're about to go on the newest and latest, fastest roller coaster. And you wait in line for four hours, right? So you're in line and you're watching over and over and over again. The roller coaster's going, the people are screaming, they're going upside down, they're going through the loops. You're excited. So you finally get on the roller coaster, you sit in the seat, and they go through the instructions, and then the harnesses of everybody start coming down. You know this point in, at the roller coaster? But your harness doesn't come down. And the high school kid getting paid minimum wage shockingly does not notice. What do you do in that moment? Do you go, finally, I've been riding roller coasters my whole life. I've never gotten to do one like I want to do it. No, you're like, stop the ride. Stop the ride. There's a problem. And like, you got to get that harness fixed. Because if you don't, if you don't have the presence of that good restriction in your life, uh, you're probably not going to survive that roller coaster. But if you do, you're going to enjoy zero seconds of it because you're just going to be holding on for dear life, right? Where, if you have the right restriction, the, the harness comes over you. You can ride that roller coaster with joy, arms up, holding nothing, screaming with pleasure the whole time. Some of you are still screaming in terror, but it's possible, right? Because true freedom, true freedom is not the absence of restrictions, living however we want to live. True freedom is the presence of the right restrictions, that a God comes to us and says, I created the world and I created you and I know how life works best. Here's how you live to have true freedom. Here's how you walk into fullness of joy. It's the right restrictions holding us back. And so without it, we don't have real freedom. But the thing about freedom is it comes in phases. We see that reality playing out in the coming chapters. Exodus 12, the Passover happens, then the people cross the Red Sea, and then over and over again, the Israelites have these moments. You know them well. They're now free people, objectively free, out of slavery, out of bondage for the first time in 400 years. But what do they do? They want to go back, right? Here's one example, Exodus 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Freedom comes in phases. A people that's objectively free, but subjectively they're still in slavery. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to illustrate it this way. He said, imagine you were a slave in the southern United States before the Emancipation Proclamation. Anytime a white person told you to do something, you did it because you lived in fear. But then imagine 
It's a year after the Emancipation Proclamation. Objectively, on paper, you're a free person, but you go into town and a white person yells at you and tells you to do something. What's your gut reaction? To listen and do it, right? Because even though you're objectively free, subjectively, you're still in some way living in slavery. This is the picture of the Christian life. We're free from the penalty of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we're not totally free like we will be one day from the presence of sin. We're still in some ways escaping its power subjectively. So here's Clemson Perez. Here's the whole Christian life in one summary. You are objectively free because of the blood of Christ shed for you. Now live as free people. And we know that's a battle, right? It comes in phases. But that's the Christian life, to strive for the holiness without, no one, without which no one will see the Lord, taking what we know objectively, that God has freed us and working that out subjectively. And then lastly, we have a new salvation, a new salvation. So what exactly happens during this new identity and new freedom? What's this calendar-altering event? What happens to reverse this generational slavery? The answer is, of course, the Passover. That's how the people become free. You know, we often forget that the Passover is attached to the 10th plague, the death of, the, of every firstborn son in uh, Egypt. And you know, if you read back through the 10 plagues, sometimes God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. So for example, Israel's cattle didn't die, their crops weren't hailed on, their land didn't go dark. God decided just at certain points, this plague is only going to affect the Egyptians and not the Israelites. But then he gets to the 10th plague, and there's no such distinction. Every firstborn son in every house, Egyptian, Israelite, or other, is going to die. And you might read that honestly and go, isn't that a little over the top? Every firstborn son in the morning is going to be dead? Isn't that a little far, God? A little bloodthirsty, are we? We ask questions like that because we read the Bible through man-centered eyes and ask man-centered questions. Why doesn't God just love everyone? Why doesn't God just forgive all sin? Why can't everyone just go to heaven? The Bible asks God-centered questions. The Bible asks questions like, how is it possible that a holy God can deal with people like you and me, that he could possibly let us exist in his presence for one second? The Bible asks God-centered questions. So John Stott says it this way, the crucial question we should ask, therefore, is not why God finds it difficult to forgive, but how he finds it possible to do so at all. In the words of Carnegie Simpson, forgiveness is to man the plainest of duties, to God it is the profoundest of problems. For although indeed God is love, we have to remember that his love is holy love, love which yearns over sinners while at the same time refusing to condone their sin. How then could God express his holy love in forgiving sinners without compromising his holiness and his holiness in judging sinners without frustrating his love? What's the solution? This is the biggest question of the Bible. How can God be holy and just and loving and forgiving at the same time? And the answer is in this passage. Salvation is only possible through substitution. 
Salvation is only possible through substitution. The reason that God passed over some houses and didn't pass over others had nothing to do with the people that were in that house in this way. It had nothing to do with their social standing or the family they grew up in or their moral record. It had nothing to do with that. The only reason, the only thing that made the difference that night, the only houses that God passed over were the ones that were painted with the blood of the Lamb. The only, death would visit every house. The only question was, is it a son or the lamb? Salvation is only possible through substitution. I love the picture that D.A. Carson gives us of the night before the Passover. Uh, He says, imagine two guys named Smith and Brown. So, not Jewish names, right? So you can tell this is a made-up illustration. Don't try to find this in the Bible. So imagine two guys named Smith and Brown in the night before the Passover. Smith says to Brown, Brown, I got to be honest with you. I'm really nervous about what's about to go down. I mean, I don't want to kill this lamb in the first place. My kids love this lamb, but the instruction, I mean, we're going to paint our doorframe with the blood. I don't. And Brown says to Smith, what are, you, what are you so afraid of? God's told us what to do. He's been extremely clear about the instructions. I don't have any fear at all. And Smith says, I don't know, man. I mean, I'm going to do it, but like, I'll be cowering in the corner all night, just honestly. Like, a lot has happened around here. Which one of those men had their firstborn son saved that night? The answer is what? Both. Both. Because the whole picture that we get here is not that the moral record or the strength of their faith saves these firstborn kids. The only thing that saves them, the only thing that makes the difference is the blood of the lamb in their place. It's the object of their faith, not the strength of it. And so both men's families are saved. By the way, isn't it amazing to watch redemption unfold through Scripture? Think about this picture of the lamb that we get all the way, starting in Genesis 22. God tells Abraham to take Isaac up on the mountain, and he provides a lamb in his place. One lamb for one man. In this chapter, Exodus chapter 12, God says, I'm going to visit every family, but a lamb will save your firstborn son. One lamb for each family. Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. See how this is just widening? God says, take one lamb for the nation that all the guilt can be placed on it and killed. One lamb for one nation. And then in John chapter 1, Jesus comes on the scene, and what does John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One lamb for one world. Salvation is only possible through substitution. And so we'll close here. It's, um, it's no coincidence, right, that uh, the night before Jesus is killed, what are they celebrating? Passover. No coincidence. You know, it's fascinating in every single account of the Passover, every gospel writer tells us about it. And they tell us about the wine and the bread and the earth, like they tell us about everything. But you know what's missing in every single account? The lamb. There's no lamb. The gospel writers are just trying to give us this window into God's amazing redemptive story. There's no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table. 
that all of this is pointing forward to the Lamb of God who will be slaughtered in our place to forgive our sin. So brothers and sisters, what makes the difference for us? All of us deserve God's judgment. All of us are unholy people before an unholy God. What makes the difference? What makes the difference is the Lamb of God who sheds his blood, and we paint our lives with the Lamb of God and say, this is our only hope. It's our only hope. Not my family history or my moral track record or anything that I can bring to the table, but salvation can only come through substitution. So it's a beautiful reality that we see in Exodus 12, this turning point for God's people, that's also our story. Our Savior shed his blood for us. Let's pray together. Father, what an incredible passage. What a privilege it is to see how you work in history. And this great picture of salvation through substitution that we get at the Passover is not just a story we get to read and marvel at, but a story that we get to walk into that you, Jesus, were willing to shed your blood for unholy people like us, for sinners like us, to make it possible for us to be a part of the family of God. (laughs) And so, God, as we journey through faith, as these brothers and sisters at Clemson Prez journey through faith until we finally make it home and we're free from the presence of sin, would you help us day by day, step by step, moment by moment, to live out subjectively what's true of us objectively, that we're free people because of the substitution of the Son in our place. There is therefore now no condemnation for us. And so God, help us to live out that reality, always trusting that we have a God who loves us when we fail, who sticks with us and says he's never going to leave us or forsake us, and promises to hold on to us until we make it home. God, we worship you for your grace, and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.